Thank you for setting your podcast style to 14th and G today. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. I'm really pleased to be joined today by founding partner at the firm, David Castagnetti and Jim Messina. Jim ran President Obama's successful 2012 campaign for re-election, uh, and it was a remarkable campaign. I say that as a Republican because what he put together really set the standard for incorporating technology and how campaigns are run. And it was a watershed moment for candidates communicating directly with voters. Jim went on to serve as Deputy Chief of Staff to President Obama. And since 2013, he's run the Messina Group, Political and Corporate Advisors. So I really can't think of anyone better a position to discuss the future of the Democratic Party. And really pleased to have you both. David Castagnetti, Jim Messina, welcome to 14th and G. Thanks, Dean. You know, both parties continue to fight some version of civil war within their ranks. For the Republican establishment, it started with the Tea Party movement in 2010. But these battles have really moved beyond the quadrennial convention fights, Carter versus Kennedy, which way are we headed type contests. These are now well-funded, organized primary contests at nearly every level of public office. Elliot Engel, Dan Lipinski, uh, and just this past Tuesday, Lacey Clay out in Missouri, all pretty popular incumbents in safe seats. They all lost the Democratic Party's renomination. Jim, is this a generational divide? Is it blind retaliation at anything perceived establishment? What's driving this movement on the Democratic side, and what does it mean for the future of your party? Well, it's a great question, Dean, and one that, you know, I've really thought a lot about. On one hand, if you kind of look at these incumbents, you know, Elliot Engel, uh, Lipinski, et cetera, they all had been in there a long time, and they were all kind of incumbents that weren't ready for these primaries. You know, Elliot Engel didn't even think he had a primary, and then he ended up losing handily. And some of this is just, as Castro and I know from our Hill days, some of this is just incumbents who, you know, get fat, happy, and lazy and enjoy the trappings of the office and don't kind of do the retail politics. Um, and so, you know, you don't see a bunch of these kind of early freshman, sophomore, junior, or third year incumbents losing because they still have a pretty good, you know, sense of it. However, you know, both parties, uh, to your point, Dean, are seeing kind of seismic shifts who really now kind of fuels their parties. And as you said, or uh, as you kind of referenced earlier, I now mostly do international campaigns. And we've done, elected about a dozen presidents and prime ministers around the world. And what you're seeing around the world is the rise of these third and fourth, fifth political parties that are really uh, kind of bent out of this sort of populism rage um, both the left and the right, you know, and some of these people are winning. The the current ruling coalition in Italy, where I do a bunch of work, is uh, kind of founded and run by a guy whose former advocation was clown, not a like fucking <laughs> you know political clown, an actual clown with a nose, right? And then he started a party that now is the governing coalition, right? Um, and so you see that in Mexico, where AMLO uh, was a member of a party that didn't exist. You're kind of seeing this all over the place, you know, Macron in France, etc. The only place in your not saying this is in the United States of America. And we have no third party. And why is that? And we don't have a third party because of the Electoral College. And both of the, the major American parties don't want to lose. And so um, because you need 270 electoral votes, there is no third party, both the congressional level or the or the federal level. And I did a couple of events, uh, speaking events with Mayor Bloomberg 
who always says, look, you know, I spent $100 million in 2008, 2012, thinking about running against Jim's boss, Obama. And in the end, I realized that there was no way you could win. Ross Perot, who David and I remember because we're old, uh, in 1992 and 1996 got 18% and 13% and got zero electoral votes. So because there's no sort of pressure valve for this, where do you see this populism anger is in both primaries. And I really think right now we have four political parties in the United States. They're just inside two parties, right? The, the Trumpian Republicans, Dean, I would hesitate to say, look very different from your country club Republicans that you grew up with. The kind of, you know, Biden wing the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party that I grew up with looks very different than the AOC wing. And so this back and forth is very natural. It's happening all over the world. And it's happening because there aren't great political answers to the future. We're doing three presidential races around the world right now in three different continents. And it is amazing how similar they are in the most important issue, kind of put COVID aside for a second. The most important issue is always like, what is the economic future? What does it look like? Where are these jobs going to come from? Because tech is taking them all over the place. And sort of, you know, I do a ton of work in the UK. The rise of Brexit, the rise of Trump is all kind of on the populism part of the right. The rise of Bernie, the rise of AOC, you know, the rise of a of, uh, of few people on the left is, is the same thing just on the left. It's just this expression. There's different recipes for it. And there's different kind of answers to what these people think they should do. But it's the same problem, which is voters for the first time in world history now believe in every single country we've done business in that the future is worse than the past. And that was just never true. They brought into this kind of post-World War II world of, we all are going to get better. My kids' lives are going to be better. You know, little David Cassinetti can grow up and be better than, than his daddy and, and, and build this firm. And it was true. And voters around the world no longer believe that. And so activists, which are what populates parties in the U.S. on the left and the right, say that's fine, but we don't give a shit about that. We want to cha fundamentally change the country. And in President Trump's case, they, they did, and they are. And, you know, in the kind of AOC sort of Bernie case, they haven't yet. And that's going to be the struggle when Joe Biden wins and there's a Republican primary. That's exactly what you're going to see on your side, too. And it's going to happen for the next decade. Go ahead, David. Just pick up on that point for a second. Did you, just on that, it, 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 go beyond the electoral college for a second, if you don't mind, and explain why those wings of the party can't create two new parties and have, we have four parties as well. Yeah, look, the system is as rigged as, as you think it is. The system is rigged to make sure that there are only two parties in the U.S. And, and you go into some of these state legislatures and there's no way to even get on the ballot in some of these places. And so you just have no, typically how these movements have worked around the world is you kind of have a, a party that rises and gets power in one section of the country and ends up sweeping around. And you just can't do that anywhere in the U.S. There is fundamentally no third party uh, anywhere in the U.S. that has any sort of power in any state legislature, any governorship, right. you know, anyone. And so it, it really, and then you look at the money, you look at ballot access, you look at, you know, some of the rules that states have done trying to limit spending. 
and what they've done is try to make the parties more powerful to get back to the old days and say, okay, you can, like my home state of Montana, where I'm sitting, you can only give $180 to the governor's candidate, which Castro and I were thrilled to learn because we only had to give $180 to our friend, Mike Kennedy. Uh, but, but they said, but don't worry, to get by the Supreme Court and Citizens United thing, you can give all the money you want to state parties. Well, the moment you do that, David and, and Dean, as you know, then you're making no chance for a third party because if you're a libertarian or a green or whatever, you're never going to be able to do that. And so rich guys like Casto can write a $25,000 check to the state party. Or if you're a Coke or if you're a George Soros on my side, you can write a $10 million check. And that's just another reason why we're just not going to have credible third parties. And that bums all my friends out. And at cocktail parties, people get so depressed about it when I say this. But it's okay because we kind of have those parties in each primary. And that's kind of what you're, what you're seeing in some of these primary fights. I think it's kind of less important. Now let's get to the numbers Dean's about to ask me about. You know, there's all this kind of big panicking in Washington right now about, oh my God, Lacey Clay and Lipinski and all these guys lost their primaries. But like, you know, DC is a 10 square mile logic free zone um, populated, by, <laughs> populated by panickers. Uh, and you know, this panicking is like three months after the anointed moderate candidate that everyone wanted in DC, Joe Biden got the nomination. Like, you know, here's the right. truth. <laughs> Here, here's the truth. In a Pew poll earlier this year, and um, Pew does this pretty interesting study of who both parties' bases are. And 51% of Democratic primary voters say they are either moderate or conservatives. And 49% say they're either liberal or very liberal. So that is the perfect number to say exactly why we have this split in our party. And it's exact. And, you know, and if you look at kind of all the candidates sort of running at the end, and I met with all 28 people who ran for Democratic uh, president nomination, um, you know, Biden in, in some ways won because the actual voting base of the party decided that he was the only one who could beat Donald Trump, and they just wanted to win, and so they went to Donald, they went to to Joe Biden, in amazing ways. Because if you look at New Hampshire and Iowa, those are pretty liberal electorates inside the primary, and then you got to South Carolina, which is very moderate, and they were like, "Ha, uh we're done." We're going to pick uh -huh. Biden because they are moderates and because they want they wanted to beat Donald Trump. Now, you know the the bloodlust reckoning that you're going to have in your primary dean in 2024 on primary uh, on who you're going to be. We're going to have that too, and you kind of see that in some of these primaries. But there's still half of Democratic primary voters who say they're moderate or conservative. Jim, let me ask you about that because Joe Biden is, uh, he appears to be, as you said, he was rallied around because he was the guy who had the best chance to beat Trump. And that's really what Democratic voters cared about. You think of, you think of Reagan, of Clinton, of Obama, uh, they all sort of heralded something new in the Democratic Party. Joe Biden is such a known quantity. Assuming uh, a Biden administration, how does he fit into that head of the party role? And can he militate between, uh, in this 24-hour news, 24-hour campaign cycle that we seem to live in, uh, when, when, that, when that left populist wing of the Democratic Party uh, rises up, can, can he militate between them and the establishment? 
Yeah, it's going to be his biggest challenge. And, you know, for a second, I remember, and Dean, you had exactly the right question, because 69% of Democratic primary voters uh, said the most important issue in Democratic primary was who could beat Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the single most unifying factor in the Democratic Party since Bill Clinton in 1992. Um, and he, you know, we don't have these big fights at kind of the presidential or national level. You haven't seen any fights really about the Democratic Party platform, about the positions he's taken, because both wings of the Democratic Party have just said, hey, shut up, it's all about beating Trump. And, and so that's why he's been really free to take some more moderate positions on things like Medicare for all, or climate change, on other things that some of his primary opponents thought they had to do. And he kind of realized very early, this was a referendum on one thing and one thing only, and that's beating Donald Trump, and he was gonna win that referendum. And so his, pro his primary, uh, problem is going to be January 21st. Uh, and, you know, what is House Bill 1? What is House Bill 2? Like, right. you know, is it climate change? Is it, you know, Medicare for all? Is it like, you know, then how do you start mediating this? And like, I lived this because I was deputy chief of staff the first two years for Barack Obama when we walked in and and, you know, we had this war on the first day of the Obama administration in the Oval Office fight. I was fishing two days ago in Montana with Rahm Emanuel, and he and I were laughing about it because the very first fight we had on the first day of the Obama administration is what bill do we introduce first? And, right, we, we were the hope you change you guy, right? We didn't really talk deeply about it. You this. had 60 votes in the Senate. <laughs> right, right. It was time to get some shit hey, done. Hey, right? Jim, I, I, I like the qualifier there. First fight you had. <laughs> right, yeah, right now. Like, Rob and I, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, and there were real things. We had just, you know, working with Bush, we just passed a stimulus bill. We had another one that we were going to vote on that week. But then did you do energy? Did you do education? Did you do healthcare? Did you do a climate change bill? You know, you had all these things that the 60 votes in the Senate and this huge majority in the House wanted to do. And I remember one of the earliest problems was we hadn't really told the country that we were going to do healthcare first. And it was really hard because suddenly we were fighting about government option, right? Which when Howard Dean had run on healthcare four years before, he didn't even talk about because it, it wasn't even an idea. And suddenly we had this war inside our party about government option versus, you know, something we could actually get 60 votes in the United States Senate for. And it ended up taking us, you know, on that very first day, Obama goes, look, we're going to do healthcare because I've been around the country and people are suffering. We're going to go do it. Jim, how long to get it through the Senate? And I was like, not more than six months. Um, 14 months later, <laughs> we finally rolled my former boss, Max Marcus, and, and, like, you know, and went and got the bill passed. And it was so much harder to kind of hold the coalition together. And Biden's not going to have anywhere near the numbers. He's have, you know, at best 52 seats, maybe. You know, if things get out of hand, 53, he's just not going to have sort of any of that uh, ability. So, so Dean's question is the right question, which is then how do you start to govern some of this stuff? You know, the good news is he has the strongest House speaker in modern memory. So she'll strong arm whatever she has to. And I've seen her do this before and with small majorities and big majorities. The problem is going to be in the United States Senate. And the very first thing we're going to fight about, I know Dean wants to talk about this, is the filibuster. And the reason right. why we're going to fight about
about it is because he's not going to have the ability to get the things done he wants to get done. Hey, Jim, just, just on that, I, as you think about it, if you were talking to the Biden people, which you do all the time, on HR1, do you see that as more a tactical thing this time where it's lower than Medicare eligibility to the age of 60? Or do you see HR1 as a Green New Deal? How, what, what would your thoughts be on that? I think Biden is going to want to be who he is, right? Which is something that how can we actually get stuff passed? And, you know, whenever we we try to do something crazy, eventually we trudge down the hall to the vice president's office and say, okay, Mr. Vice President, how do you get this through the Senate? And he'd smile and say, let me make some phone calls. Um, and, and, and I think, which was very true in healthcare and uh, really, really true in Don't Ask, Don't Tell and Start and the whole stimulus bill where he literally purchased the votes of uh, Republican U.S. Senators, uh, I think he's going to want to do some things that can get done. And so that's going to be his very first discussion with Nancy Pelosi is. And she's going to say, I get you, but we also have some stuff that my caucus wants done too. And that'll be the negotiation that will happen on the first day. Well, is there a case here for, for playing some small ball and, you know, big landmark pieces of legislation on immigration, on climate? I mean, the laundry list for a democratic restoration is is pretty long. Are there you know, both regular, both uh, administratively and legislatively? You know, is there a case here for Biden to just try to notch some small victories here in the first year, or or this is going to go big from the gate? Look, I think the important thing will be to kind of understand the mandate, and the mandate was from both his primary win and if he wins the general, the mandate will be let's return to normal. You know, we, we tried this experiment. It was a singular failure in American politics with this president, Trump. And we want to go back, and the, the country is going to say we want to go back to people who can govern together and get stuff done. And so I think that's a small ball mandate, Dean. And I think there's all this kind of consensus. And if I was advising them, I would say why you just won both the primary and the general is your promise to go back to the ways of actually getting some stuff done. And that's not going to be big fundamental changes right now. That is going to be pass an immigration bill that makes sense. Fix Obamacare, get COVID done, et cetera. One thing just to on that, Jim, is you mentioned, um, you know, kind of getting through the Senate and what happens to the filibuster and what doesn't. One thing that uh, you should be exceptionally proud of, it's possible we could have 10 Democratic senators from Rocky Mountain states after this election. And a lot of that is a real tribute to the work you did uh, dating back to 1996 to kind of keep someone in office at, at that point. But to me, like people forget on the, the AOC point you made, the 10 Rocky Mountain Senate state senators represent over 20% of the Senate Democratic caucus. You know, you know the Rocky Mountain states way better than all of us. I mean, there's a different worldview than the East Coast, West Coast elites that go with it. And that's going to certainly drive a lot of what the Senate is uh, is thinking about it. My, my yeah, I think you're exactly right, David. And part of what people haven't figured out yet is just the, the fundamental change in American politics. Because, you know, Republicans are sort of taking over in the Midwest you know, a decade ago or 
15 years ago, Missouri kind of went away from the Democrats. Now it's Ohio going away. If you look at sort of the abilities for both parties to grow, the Republicans' abilities in the Midwest uh, in these states are getting older and wider and look more like Dean uh, than, <laughs> than, than anything else. And the Democrats' uh, growth is in the Southwest and the West, where it's just looking way more kind of politically progressive, way more kind of young and brown and American. And if you just look at the unregistered voters in Texas, in Arizona, and even Georgia, and then go into the West, I mean, you know, the, the number one tipping state in America in 2008 was Colorado. It was the most swing state. It had gone back and forth the most. That state is now so solidly blue that it's not, we're not even talking about it at a presidential level. And the two, there's two senators who everyone in D.C. knows is going to lose, and one of them sits in Colorado. And he could run the greatest campaign ever, and that state's gone because of Donald Trump, right? And then you look at Arizona. Arizona was a state where I desperately wanted to, to play in 2008, 2012, and just couldn't. And it's now likely we're going to have two Democratic senators, and they're going to go a Democratic president for the first time in 25 years. You know, Bill Clinton was the first time to win California. Biden leads Trump by 39 points in California. <laughs> 39 points is just ungodly. And so you just kind of look at how the map is changing. And, you know, we're just kind of exchanging states. And it really is kind of changing politics, especially in the United States Senate. Jim, the only, the only one of those last three calls I'm going to back you on is that California is no longer Reagan country. Um, <laughs> hey Jim, before we wrap up, I really wanted to get your take. When you addressed the you addressed the, the Democratic National Convention in 2012, and you talked about the numbers, but not just the data and the money, the the but the the people, uh, the volunteers, the door knockers, the phone bankers, the folks that do get out the vote work. You know, neither of these guys is going to attend anything like a party convention in Milwaukee or Charlotte. Convention actually seemed anachronistic a decade ago. Is that gone the way of the buggy whip? What, what, is the, what is the function, the campaign functioning of these parties look like? Is the whole thing digitized? Yeah, and it should be, right? You know, when Casco was in high school, they would publish, the, you know, they would, they would do TV on the whole thing. And by the time <laughs> we got to 2016, they would do, you know, an hour, two hours a night on Thursday uh, and Wednesday and right. one hour Monday and Tuesday. And so I think we're gonna go to virtual conventions. I think we should go to virtual conventions. Um, I think, you know, no one else does this except for in the UK. And there it really is a party. Um, it really is just drinking. It's not anything to do with voting on stuff. And in the age of the internet, you really can, you know, do all the kind of householding things you should do. You know, they'll still want to do some kind of event because you have low programming in, in the summer. And swing voters, you know, in our research, don't really start paying attention to the convention. And the convention kind of says to them, hey, it's time to think about it. And there is still a convention bump because the country really will tune in to at least Biden and Trump's speech. And so, um, you know, you're still going to want to have those. and There's still going to be kind of a need to do it. But the like, you know, $100 million parties in these cities that don't really want them and 
in the end or you know protest the whole time or it's just i do a lot of work in north carolina and i promise you there were lots of people happy when trump moved the convention out of there and, and i think that's true in milwaukee too people were like oh if i can't rent my house for ten thousand dollars a night i don't want you here <laughs> <laughs> well jim it's uh it's supposed to be veep week uh do you have a uh, do you have a preference or a prediction <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, more important than who I think is what. And, you know, I was involved in the 08 election of Biden. And the, the thing when you realize when you look at this, and I did a bunch of study on this, is that um, the most important rules do no harm. In our lifetime, the three of us remember the two picks that blew up, Eagleton in 72 and Sarah Palin in 2008. And so especially if you're Biden and you're leading um, you just want to pick someone that won't blow up. So, so first is do no harm, and, and second is just don't pick someone for a state because you only get about 0.8 percent in the home state. And you know, I always like to tease the Republicans that they loved Paul Ryan, but Barack Obama won his congressional district <laughs> in 2012, <laughs> so it doesn't do anything. So, you know, I think he's gonna he's gonna go as safe as he can go. You know, I hope he doubles down the economic stuff because I think that's where people are and less on the foreign policy stuff. But, you know, I think he's already done the one thing he should do, which is pick a woman and then hopefully pick someone who's ready to withstand the barrage of, of attention they're about to get. David Castagnetti, Jim Messina, thanks for joining me down 14th and G. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you.